Yeah, so we are continuing our, uh, our look at the book of Acts. We're looking at what it means as Bethany Church to be on mission together and trying to just understand what, what the book of Acts has to teach us about what it means as a church to be on mission together. Uh, one of my favorite uh, heroes of the faith, I guess you could say, that I love to learn from is uh, Corey Ten Boom and, and what she and her family did. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with her story, how during World War II times, Nazi Germany, uh, her and her family used their home to, to hide Jewish people and um, saved, saved many lives, uh, saved them from, from terrible situations. But eventually, uh, her and her family were caught, and they went to various uh, concentration cramp, camps, prison camps, and, and we hear a lot of the story of Corrie Ten Boom and her, her sister Betsy from her books, like The Hiding Place. And uh, I was just uh, reminded of one story from, from The Hiding Place. Because so I was getting ready for this, this message, and it was, you know, her, her and her sister had endured terrible things, obviously, in, in the concentration camps. And uh, her sister Betsy eventually died there. And... Her sister had uh, like a vision that, that Corey would get set free, and, and shortly thereafter, uh, Corey did get set free. They found out later uh, that it was because of a clerical error that Corey got set free, and if she would have stayed, I think it was a week longer, she would have faced the gas chamber. So it was actually a mistake that she was let go. Uh, and then she spent her, her days after that just uh, ministering and, and having a places of healing after the war and, and speaking about Christ's forgiveness. And one of those times when she spoke about Christ's forgiveness, she, she came face-to-face uh, -face with a man who was a guard in the, in the concentration camp uh, where her and her sister were severely mistreated. And, and he, he extended his hand to her and said, I'm so thankful for this message. How can it be that he would wash our sins away? He extended her, his hand to her, and, and she just froze just those, those memories and those feelings of, of rage and injustice kind of went through her, and she felt like she couldn't lift her hand to shake his hand. And so she, just, she, she knew the Lord was calling her to forgive, and she just asked the Lord to help her to forgive, and, and she prayed that, and then she still couldn't lift her hand, and then she prayed again, and she said, Lord, I can't forgive. I need your forgiveness. And then after she had prayed that, then she was able to to lift her hand to shake the guy's hand. And she said if she did it, it felt like there was just this current that went through her to the man, and, and this overwhelming love filled her. And she realized that it wasn't her forgiveness that would bring healing, but it was God's forgiveness. And I love what she says. She says, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. And that's so profound to me. And that's, that's, not, that's like all of Christianity. Like he commands and, and he gives the grace to obey the command. So I love that quote from her. But, but where does this kind of reconciliation come from? It seems impossible for someone so mistreated in such a horrible situation to feel an overwhelming love for the person who had done the mistreatment. How, how is this possible? And I think it's only possible because we have a supernatural God who, with a supernatural gospel that can, can do impossible reconciliation. And and that's what we're going to look at this morning, reconciled for the mission. And we're going to look at Acts chapters 8 and 9 and to see the different ways God's reconciliation comes into the early church. 
So I'm going to just pray as we get going here. Father God, we just thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would unfold your words to us, that you would give us light and understanding, that you would cause our hearts to be good soil for what you want to say to us. And we just pray that you would speak your message through me so that we would be changed, so that we would all be reconciled people who are on mission to reconcile others. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to first start with uh, a quick word about what is reconciliation? Uh, I think we kind of have a a general idea uh, that it's basically taking two groups or two people that were in conflict with each other and and bringing them to a state of of friendship or or peace or or whatever you want to call it, but but restoring them to to a new state of of harmony after uh, a, a situation of conflict and and the main reconciliation talked about in the Bible is reconciliation between, between man and God. And this is, this is not a small thing. It's not like, uh, yeah, the, we, just, we messed up a little bit, and, and so God is say, oh, yeah, it's okay. It's not a small thing. It's, it's a huge thing. It's, it's the subject of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that, that there is a terrible break in this relationship, and, and because of our sin and because of us, saying, I'm going to worship myself and I'm going to follow my ways and no thank you for what you have to say to me. Because of, of the horror of that, the whole creation is broken and the wrath of God is upon every individual sinner. Like it says in John 3, that, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son does not have life because the wrath of God remains on him. So, so the wrath of God is on, on every individual because of how they have pushed God aside and chosen to worship themselves in their own ways instead. And because we're, and I know a lot of times we don't like to, to talk about wrath, and I think sometimes we think that because, maybe we don't talk about wrath as much because we want to highlight God's love, and I, and I think that actually what happens is if we have small views of God's wrath, we also have small views of God's love. What we need is just bigger views of God in general, and of everything, of his justice, of his holiness, of his, of his righteous anger towards sin, and of his incredible love towards those who have his wrath upon them. Because it's, it's the God, it's the same God whose wrath is upon sinners who is pleading with them to be reconciled. Like it says in Ezekiel 18, it says, why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you die? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that you would turn to me and live. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God is, Paul is saying, God's making his appeal through us, so we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So it's the same God who, because of our sin and because of his perfect anger towards sin, has his wrath upon us that is pleading with us to be reconciled. So reconciliation is when that, when that wrath is removed because God sent his son to take it upon himself and that God just completely embraces us as his son, as his daughter, takes us as part of his bride, loves us, and sees us as flawless. That's, that's what happens when there's reconciliation. So we're going to just look and see how that works out in the book of Acts. I'm going to read some parts Uh, from Acts 8 and 9. I'm actually going to back up a little into the end of Acts 7, where Stephen is martyred, 
because at the martyrdom of Stephen, we get introduced to, to Saul, who becomes pretty important. So looking at Acts 7, uh, at the very end, after Stephen had given a speech, and they were enraged at him and ready to stone him. It says, But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, starting in 755, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So we see Saul there. there. It says later in Acts that he was guarding the clothes of the witnesses who were, who were stoning Stephen. And, and so Saul was there. He was witnessing this happening to Stephen and seeing Stephen cry out for, for even forgiveness for those who are pelting him with rocks that are going to put him to death. And so you wonder, is that starting to have an effect on Saul? But if it did, he hardened himself against it at first because we go on to, into chapter 8. And it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Interesting, Judea and Samaria that it mentions, because in Acts 1, when Jesus says, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and and you're to uh, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see those same cities here that Jesus had talked about at the beginning of Acts. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. It was probably very brave of them to do so because it was probably like a public protest against what had happened to Stephen. So for them to bury him probably took a lot of courage. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It seems often when there's persecution against God's people that they, that they target the leaders. But it was like Saul was like, I'm going to go after every single individual Christian I can, house after house. I'm taking them. I'm dragging them off bringing them to prison. Such was his zeal to extinguish Christianity. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. And so it goes on, uh, talks about a man named Simon, a magician, who he had kind of a big following in, in Samaria, and people thought he had great power. It seems like he was probably doing some miraculous works, maybe by demonic powers. And, but when he saw Philip doing signs and wonders, he, he was like, whoa, what, what's going on? This is, this is real power. And so he, it says he believed and became baptized, and then the apostles came to pray for those at Samaria. And it says, when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And then taken up in verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So it's just interesting. We see another piece of the reconciling going on here, that God gave 
to the Samaritans, the Holy Spirit, just as he did at Jerusalem, saying, there's no difference in my kingdom between these Samaritans who you, who you call half-breeds and who you think are just heretics and you're hostile towards. They are fully, they received the gift of God fully, just like you did. And it seems that God wanted to make that point so much that he brought the apostles there so that the Holy Spirit was given when they laid their hands on them. In verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So we see just that the, how mistaken Simon was and words of judgment are, are spoken to him if he doesn't repent of his attitude, thinking that, that for his fame he could just give money and then he can have this gift of God. God doesn't work that way. He only gives his grace as a gift. So then we continue on with the story of Philip, one of the coolest stories in the Bible. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Why, why are you telling me, Lord, to, to leave this, this city with all these people who are all coming to know you? There's all this ministry here. You're telling me to go to a desert place? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all, all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So, so we continue, Philip went over there, he, he joined the Ethiopian, he found out he was reading from Isaiah 53 about the lamb being led to the slaughter, and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? And, and the Ethiopian's like, how, how can I unless someone explains to me? What a perfect situation. Oh, you're reading about the lamb led to the slaughter? Let me tell you about Jesus. And so he tells him about Jesus, and the Ethiopian gets, gets baptized. And then the really cool part, right? Philip's taken away by the Holy Spirit to another town right after that. Moving on into chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And so it's just, we see that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And this it's kind of like when Jesus said in Matthew 25, whatever you do to the least of these, my people, you've done unto me. It includes both good things you do to God's people and it includes bad things you do to God's people. And, it, and it's also kind of similar to in Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira were, were struck down because of how they lied about the money that they gave because they thought they were just doing it to man. But in reality, what they were doing to God's people was being done to God. They were lying to God, not just to man. And I just think that's just so important that, that we treat each other as if everything we're doing is done unto God, that God's always among us when we're with each other or talking about each other, that it's always before God, not just before man. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So that's uh, all I'm going to read here. We're just going to look at then some, what are some of the ideas we can pull out from Acts 8 and Acts 9 about about reconciliation, reconciliation between God and man, and reconciliation between people. Well, one, uh, so we're called to be, we're called to be, when we're reconciled, we're called to be on mission to reconcile others. And when we're on mission to reconcile, there will be persecution. That seems, that seems clear, both from the fact of what Stephen went through and from the fact that when, when Jesus called Saul, he said, through Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That, that there's suffering involved that even as one of the songs we sing from Romans 8, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. That there, there's suffering, there's persecution. That anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we don't want to promise some fluffy Christianity that doesn't prepare us for, prepare us for the reality of what will be coming. Not that we want to go seeking persecution. We just want to be faithful. So we just want to be faithful. But if we're faithful, we're going to face some persecution. We're going to face some suffering. There will also be grace for persecution. There will be grace. It's not, he's not just saying, yeah, you'll be persecuted. I'll see you in the age to come. That's, that's not how God is. There will be grace for it. Like, I'm pretty sure that Stephen didn't normally see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father before that moment when, when the stones were coming. But in that moment, Jesus appears to him in a way that's going to strengthen him and cause him to endure through that situation. And not only cause him to endure, but give him the grace to be able to cry out for his enemies in that moment. Lord, don't hold this sin against them, including Saul who's standing there. Don't hold this sin against them. That there's grace that Jesus comes to us when we need him in those moments of persecution. That if you feel like right now, I don't know, I don't know if I'll be ready when that moment comes. Well, yeah, maybe not with the grace that you have right now because God knows that you don't have, you don't need that grace right now, but when the time comes, that grace will come as well. When we're on mission, we'll be persecuted, but there will be grace for the persecution. 
Also, our trials may be God's way to get us on mission, to get us on mission, on the reconciling mission he has for us. Because we see at the beginning of Acts 8 that there's persecution from the stoning of Stephen. And then what happens? They leave Jerusalem and go out and do exactly what Jesus told them to do in Acts 1. To Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what happens. They go about preaching the word. So sometimes our trials and our tribulations aren't just for us to struggle through, but because God's trying to move us to a different place so that we get on his mission. Or maybe we are on his mission, but he's trying to move us to a different place, like he did with Philip, from in the heart of Samaria to some desert road, that God is maybe using those things. So if you're going through one of those seasons right now, maybe ask yourself, God, are you trying to get me on mission, on this mission of reconciliation in some different way than I'm currently doing? God may have to humble us to get us, to get us of a right heart to be on mission with him, as we see with Saul when he was blinded. And this man who was so arrogant and thought he could basically single-handedly exterminate Christianity then has to be led around by his hand because he can't see and has to have Ananias come and pray for him. That God has to humble us sometimes. So if you're going through a season of humbling, take heart. God's maybe just preparing you for the reconciling mission he has for you. Of course, one of the biggest lessons I think we can get from the conversion of Saul is that anyone can be reconciled, right? Anyone can be reconciled. And that's, that's kind of the whole point of Saul being converted. He says it in 1 Timothy 1. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the, I am the foremost, I am the chief. And, and it's for this very reason that I was shown mercy so that his perfect patience could be example to those who, who come after me. Like God chose Saul for a reason so that no one could say I'm too bad to be reconciled to God. He did that for a reason. And not only, not only Saul is surprising in the reconciliation, but the reconciliation between the church in Jerusalem and the Samaritans who were enemies with each other. And then even the, the Ethiopian eunuch, if he was a eunuch in the traditional sense of the word, which meant his manhood was taken so he could serve in the royal court, then that meant in the Old Testament that he couldn't go into the temple because that, that was people who had certain defects weren't allowed into, into the temple. So he was, in a sense, considered an outcast according to the Old Testament, according to the Jewish people. And he is fully reconciled and baptized as Philip goes to him. Anyone can be reconciled. We should remember and be amazed at our reconciliation. I think that's one of the other things we can glean from the story of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. He never got over the fact that God would reconcile him to himself. He never did. And his whole life, his whole ministry was flavored by the fact that he was just completely in awe of this. I'll just read a couple scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Ephesians 3.8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He never had, how is it that God is using me? I'm the least of all the saints, and he's put his unsearchable riches in me to bring it to the Gentiles. He never got over it, and we should never get over it. 
lot of times we, we're, we're struggling with the wrong questions, like, like how, can God, how can God judge? Or how can God, when we should be saying, how, how could God save me? How could he reconcile me to himself? That's what we should be in awe of. And when we are in awe of that, that, that causes us to live in a different way, where we can say, I'm bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Here I am. I'm a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God shown to me. I think that happens when we're completely amazed at the fact that God would send his son to bear his wrath for someone like me. We're reconciled in order to be on mission to reconcile. We're reconciled in order to be on mission to reconcile. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 5 before, where Paul says, We have been given the ministry of reconciliation as if God is making his appeal through us. I appeal to you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So so I think one of the things we can do is just, just ask God, God, make your appeal through me. Put that passion of Christ in me. So I'm saying to those around me, be reconciled to God. We're reconciled in order to be on mission to reconcile. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The first thing that happened when, when Ananias prayed for Saul, he prayed and the scales fell from his eyes and it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to continue to encourage us, continue to ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit again and again. I'm just blown away as I go through the book of Acts. How many times it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had boldness. They had joy. They were, it just happens over and over that we just, let's all continue to seek God. Fill me again. Fill me again. And it's good to have experiences, whether it's, whether it's tongues or whether it's prophecy or whether it's supernatural joy or whether it's supernatural boldness. It's not going to look the same every time. But let's just keep asking for more. Fill me again, God, so I can be on mission with you. So just looking some questions about how we can apply this as we start to wrap up before communion here. First, I hope everyone can answer the question, have I been reconciled? Have I been reconciled to God? Can I say that, that God, because of my sin, God's wrath is no longer upon me, but it's been taken by Christ, and God has embraced me as his son, as his daughter? I hope every one of you can say that if you can't, Come to Jesus. He will do it for you now. I'd be happy to talk with you. But you don't need me to talk with you. You can do it right now. And then, if I've been reconciled, am I aware that the persecution's coming? So that I can start to ready myself and just get closer and closer to the Lord so that I know that in that moment, I'll have the grace I need for persecution. That I can't just expect to give, get through this life unscarred. By that? Am I in awe of my reconciliation so that I, I'm fully saying, I am bought with a price. I am not my own. Here I am a living sacrifice. Am I completely blown away by the fact that he took me into his family? Am I on mission to reconcile? Am I on mission to reconcile? And maybe or what is God doing right now that things seem really uncomfortable? Is he trying to get me on mission to reconcile? Am I going through trials or humbling so that maybe God's trying to move me to one of those places? Maybe, or maybe I'm in the heart of a good ministry, but God's just done something and I don't know why, and maybe he's trying to move me to someplace else. Maybe he's trying to, to send you to Jordan with the church plant. Who knows? Maybe there's a, a different place he has for you. 
my own mission to reconcile. Uh, the worship team can go ahead and come up and get ready for communion here. The last couple of little things here. Ask yourself, who can I pray for and seek reconciliation for? That seems completely unlikely. It seems like the most unlikely person ever to be reconciled to God. Someone who's, who's hard-hearted, someone who's antagonistic towards Christianity. Pick someone like that and pray for them. Seek for their reconciliation. I mean, absolutely, we can pray for, like, with what's going on in Afghanistan, we can pray for the Taliban there, see, hopefully, them get reconciled to God. They're like, God does this. He did it with Saul. There's no reason he won't do it with anyone else who's completely antagonistic towards Christianity. Find someone who you can seek to pray for and seek that they would be reconciled to God. And then one other thing is, who can I be a Barnabas to? And just saying that because in Acts 9, when a lot of the church was like, I don't know if we want Saul to come in and fellowship with us, Barnabas was like, no, hey, I saw him. He was testifying about Christ. Hey, let's bring him in. Who can, who can I be a Barnabas to? Maybe with Alpha going on. Uh, maybe some people are coming to know the Lord there, but maybe they're kind of rough around the edges and they're not so readily received by the church. Who, who can I be a Barnabas to? Who can I put my arm around and say, yeah, come into the fellowship. You're fully accepted. Let's pray together as we look towards communion. Lord, we just thank you so much that you are a God who reconciles and you do it in a way that seems completely impossible to us. You can, you can melt every hard heart and you can breathe and give life to anyone. And so we're asking God that you would, you would do your work of reconciling through us, that you would put your, your passion in our hearts and that you would appeal through us to others to be reconciled to God. We, we pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit and on mission to do the work of reconciliation that you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name.